in front of you, or if you have your own, or I guess you can turn on your phone, even, all right, and go to uh, your Bible app. Today's uh, message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a short chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to read um, three verses, just to jump slightly ahead, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I think it's very relevant for today's message. Um, I'm going to talk about that passage in chapter 6 that uh, we're kind of like uh, overlooking today um, soon. But um, cha- 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, and then chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. That's what I'm going to read. Um, this, today's passage is a hard passage. It's hard because it's talking about something that's actually difficult and very relevant to our society and um, actually quite scary. Here we get good. And, um, and so, just want to give you that warning. Um, we are in, in part five on a series on the church, and we're looking at the church through the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's a very important book that really helps you see the church because, quite frankly, the, the Corinthian church was a very dysfunctional church with a lot of problems And everywhere that, as Paul addresses the various different problems in the Corinthian church, he always comes back to the gospel. How the church is a community that rests in Christ and what Jesus has done for us, which we could not do for ourselves. And and today's issue in particular is is a very important one that the church needs to swallow. And um, I've entitled today's message, The Countercultural Repenting Community. That's what the church is. It's a repenting community. And, um, and I hope that they'll be, this will be helpful to you today. So let me get into today's message by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's already getting kind of scary, isn't it? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present... With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. As you can see, it's already getting a little scary, okay? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let me jump ahead to verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. It's a bit of a tough word, but um, may it bring good news to you today. Let's, let's pray for today's message. Lord, we do live in a city where all these things, this scary list, and it's not just outside of the church in this city, it's inside the church. And well, Lord, I pray that as I preach today's message, and it's a hard passage, that um, you would take my stumbling lips and your spirit would be present. And you, the Lord, would teach us and speak to us by the power of your spirit and by the truth of your word and take us to the great sufficiency of Jesus. I pray all this in his name. Amen. Let me start this message with a story. Um, whenever we come to this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, this is the story I, I, I think of. I, I heard this story in a, in a message a number of years ago. There was a guy, and he wasn't a Christian, and he lived here in the Bay Area. And many of you guys, he's not as famous now. You guys all heard of, of, the, of the pastor, a very famous preacher named Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? Billy Graham... Um, was one of the most famous preachers in the 20th century, and he would go from city to city, and oftentimes he would fill whole stadiums. And people in the churches in the city would invite their non-Christian friends to some stadium that Billy Graham is preaching, and Billy Graham would preach the gospel and teach what Jesus done, what we could not do for ourselves. And at the end of the message, there'd be an invitation to come forward and receive Christ and to become saved. And this guy, you know, his friend said, you want to go to the Billy Graham? And he was at a low place in his life. He says, okay, I mean, I don't know about this Jesus business, but I'll go, I'll go check it out. So he went to the, I don't even know what stadium it was. He went to one of these, camp, uh, these gatherings, and Billy Graham preached. And at the end, he came forward, he received Jesus, and he became saved. And after, he was like, wow, I, I just <laughs> accepted Jesus. Uh, I guess, what do I do next? I guess I should go to church. This guy, and he goes, so he didn't know what church to go to. He, I think he looked up, and, and, and then he found this neighborhood church, and that church was called Peninsula Bible Church. And you can still go to Peninsula Bible. You can go to Menlo Park. It's out in Menlo Park. It's called Peninsula Bible Church, and it's a very good church. When I was in college, I went to the college ministry at Peninsula Bible Church. And so he showed up there. And if you go there today, it's, it's a huge, thriving church. But back then... Um, the, it, it wasn't such a big church. It was a small church, probably only not so much larger than our church. And there was roughly about, maybe about 100 people in the room. 
And so this guy showed up at this church. The pastor was named Ray, back then it was a pastor named Ray Steadman. And the, and, the, and the passage he was preaching on was this passage. So he says, So, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, and you know, the homosexuals, I mean, he went down the whole list. And then he said, stop. We'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And he stopped. He said, wait a second. Hey, how many of you in this room, there's about 100 people in the room, see yourself in this list? And so, you know, this this, this is the passage he was reading. And this guy, this guy's a brand new Christian. We're sitting sitting here in this church. And he was getting really nervous because he read this list and he says, oh my goodness, I'm in that list. And it just told me, that if you're in this list, you're not going to make it. You are in trouble. You're not going to make it. And so then the pastor said, how many of you in this room see yourself in that list? And I want you right now to just stand up right here. Right now, I'm not going to make you do that, okay? <laughs> so you're sitting there, okay? But um, Ray Stedman said, if you see yourself in that list right now, I want you to stand up right where you're at. And something like a third of the room stood up. And this guy was sitting there, and he looked around the room, and he said, all right, I think I'm in the right place. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he got really re- relieved, and he got relaxed, and he goes, I think I'm in the right place. And I'm starting this message with that story because that verse is tremendously important. Because the very next verse says, such were some of you. You, you were the sexually immoral. You were the revilers. You were the adulterers. You were the idolaters, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified and justified. You've been changed by Jesus. That, more than anything, is what you need to hear when you come to church. And there's a drama there. Many people come into the church, and they know what's messed up inside of them. Sometimes they're doing it openly. (laughs) Sometimes they're doing it secretly. Sometimes this is stuff that's inside of you, and you come into the church and you read this list, and then there's this thing that's going on in chapter 5 where Paul is really mad about this guy. And what is going on here? And a lot of times people come into the church saying, if your life is kind of chaotic and you're morally messed up, what's going to happen in the church is you're going to get kicked out. But I want, I want to tell you, today's message is to, to tell you how does the gospel take us through this type of of, of process. And the key I want to tell you is it's repentance. The key is repentance. So let me get at this message in three parts. Part one, I'm going to call, what's the problem? The problem here in this passage, especially this, this guy that Paul is saying, you should judge this guy and kick him out of the community. I mean, that's a scary thing. And so that can happen, by the way, in the church. If a person is flagrantly unrepentant in their sins and is poisoning the community with their sins, Paul is saying, you've got to remove this leaven. That's what he calls it. A leaven from before he poisons the whole community. Right? So, but number one, I want to talk about this. What is the problem and how do we do, deal with this in the church? Number one. Number two, what does a gospel-empowered repenting community look like? What does a gospel-empowered, repenting community look like? And number three, I'm I'm going to say, part three, I'm going to say, repentance is beautiful. Repentance is beautiful. 
Now, let me start number, um, part one. What's the problem? This chapter five presents a rather scary issue in the church. And um, people know, one of the reasons why people kind of, um, define the church not very credible is they know that all the sins and all the moral chaos that's in the city, it's not just outside of the church, it's in, inside of the church too. And what Paul references right here in this issue, he, he, he goes in and, and so they go, oh, the church, the church, these, they're just a bunch of hypocritical people. And so they just think they have their act together. I'm not going to go to the church. But Paul here is really upset about a particular issue in the church of Corinth. There's a guy... There's a guy, he is having sex with his father's wife. And um, not to get too graphic or gross here, but I I don't think he's talking about his mom, okay? Um, That would just be just crazy out there, okay? (laughs) But what he's talking about is there's a guy in the Corinth church, he's having sex with his stepmom. I think that's the way we would kind of describe it in in the modern day. This guy is getting it on with his stepmom. And he's saying this is even... Even the pagans, the unbelievers, would, get, would just completely be grossed out by this and get really upset, right? I think even in the so-called progressive 21st century Bay Area, I think, I think most people would going, what? Your, your, your girlfriend is your stepmom? I think people would find that just, ah! Just, but that, just to go, oh, you know, we're, we're, so, you know uh, we're so much more progressive than back then. Just letting you know, this was happening in this church. Is it a problem with the fact that there are sexually, you know, people with sexual problems in the church? Is that the problem? That I don't, a lot of people read this passage and goes, there's a guy with sexual problems and it's so bad. You know, so people come into the church and goes, oh, I have some sexual immorality. And if they find out, this is what they're going to do. They're going to kick me out. Is that what this passage is saying? That's not what he's saying. Right? What he's saying is, there's this gross, flagrant sin that, that's happening, but it's happening openly and in with, without repentance. The real problem is it's open without repentance, and, and the people are even apparently boasting about it. And so you can see this. He's saying, verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. <laughs> your boasting isn't good. And he goes on to describe this problem. He's like, you have a leaven in the community, and that's the, that's, the, that's the picture he uses. And for those of you who, don't, may, who may not understand what he's saying here is, those of you, you know, bread, you take this dough together, and for bread to become nice and, you know, rise and become moist and fluffy like the way, you have to put this, just a little bit of this thing called leaven in it, and then the bread rises and it becomes nice. And what he's doing is he's referencing the Old Testament here in this passage. In, in the Exodus period, the times when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they... They couldn't, they, they had to leave Egypt so fast that they were going to take their bread and they had to take bread that didn't have even yeast in it. They couldn't even wait for it to rise. And so they had to leave town, they had to leave the whole country with this flat, unrise bread, which was unleavened bread. And every year, even to this day, Israelites, Jews, would practice Passover and they would remember this time and they'd eat this thing called unleavened bread. But he's saying this, there's a yeast. It only takes just a little bit. And if you put it, 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 changes, the whole, um, it changes the whole dough, doesn't it? And he's saying, there's a poison in the church. There's a guy who thinks, hey, I can go sleep around with my stepmom, and I can call myself a Christian. I can show up in the church and go, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a Christian. 
And he's like saying, and if that's his attitude, that is like a little yeast, which is a poison, which is going to ruin the whole loaf. And you got to get this guy out because what he thinks is a poison against the gospel. That's what he's saying. And he goes on to say, what you really need to be is what we really have, need to become is more like an unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the way he says it in verse 6. Um, in verse, verse 8, sorry, of sincerity and truth. And what his accusation is, if you think you can come into the church and be a Christian and not seek a repentance in your life, and you're just going to just live a, 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 a way that even the non-Christians know is sin, He's like, that is a form of hypocrisy, of lack of truth, lack of sincerity. And he goes on to say, I'm telling you, if a person comes into the church, and he's going around saying he's claiming he's a Christian, and he's going to just openly, flagrantly live a life that everybody knows is sin and against, is pleasing the Lord, he's saying, look, that person is such a hypocrite, you shouldn't even eat with that person. That's tough words, isn't it? Some very tough words. But then he goes on to say this, I'm not talking about, he goes, he, goes, I, he goes, I am not talking about the sexually immoral or the greedy or the swindlers, and goes on the list of the people in the world. I'm talking about the one who says he's a brother. That's what he's saying. The one who says he's a brother. Because if you just have to avoid everybody who practices, then you pretty much have to leave the world. And don't you know, we, we know that's true, right? You know, if, you're, if you're living in this world, and you're like, okay, I have to not eat with anybody who's, that's sexual immorality. I have to eat with anybody who's greedy. You go like, that would pretty much mean I can't eat with anybody. <laughs> right? But what he's saying is something different. You should not have a deep, intimate table fellowship with a person who says he's a brother, who says he believes in the Lord, but then he will not seek repentance in his life. That's what he's saying. That's a tough and hard message. Now let me say something. I get this message. That's the problem. And the reason it's scary to a lot of people, even it's scary of people in the church, is because we don't really understand what the, what, the, what the gospel is calling us to. We don't understand what repentance actually is. A lot of times we think, okay, here's what the Bible says is sin, this is wrong. And so then, you know what we do? We go, okay, that's the standard that's the law. That's what's wrong. So don't do it, okay? And so, okay, I'm just going to just use all my willpower and use all my abilities I can. I'm going to muster it up, and then I'm not going to do it, right? And you know, if that's the way you think that what Christianity is calling you to do, that's what people in the church are doing, you know what you are? You're not believing in the gospel. You're just being a legalist. Here's sin. Don't do it. That's, that, that's what we believe in the church, right? No. If that's what you believe in the church, then, quite frankly, you can just walk down to the nearest Mormon church. You can walk down to the nearest uh, Muslim shrine, uh, you know, going down to the, um, to the Muslim temple, and they'll tell you the exact same thing. Here's the standard. Don't do it. That isn't what we teach here. We, of course you're not to sin, but we teach something more than that. You're just a legalist if you're saying, by my willpower, I'm going to stop. But then a lot of times people say, I'm going to, you know what? I, I like this sexual sin, right? This guy obviously liked his, his stepmom, okay? I, mean, that's, I know that's kind of gross, and I'm sorry to use that image, but that's the one that the Bible is using, all right? And he apparently liked his stepmom, and he didn't want to stop, you know, having an affair with his stepmom. 
So, so then sometimes people go to churches, okay, so the gospel tells us it's not just that we just have to just stop our willpower, so then that means we're forgiven, right? The gospel tells us we're forgiven. And so people go, oh, we're, we're forgiven, and then we begin to think, that means the gospel gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so some people like to put it this way. Jesus likes forgiving sins, and I like to sin. So that's a pretty good deal, all right? So that's what church is for. We show up, and it's great to hear that Jesus forgave me of my sins, so that's cool. I'll, you know, that means I get to keep sinning, get out of jail free card. That's the gospel. It's not the gospel, right? What we tend to fall into the church is we tend to fall into legalism or we tend to fall into license. Or sometimes this is why the, the, the pastors call it antinomianism. We're like against the law. The gospel doesn't pitch you against the law or the standards of God. What the gospel does is it changes you to make you new and holy, far more beautiful than you can ever imagine within the standards of God. That's actually what it And so the church, if, the, if you come into the church, most people know, okay, you're not supposed to do all this wrong stuff. So, but there's lots of people in the church that just, just think, therefore, we're just going to just stop doing it. And, you know, like, and then a lot of times people come to the church when their willpower or their personal discipline or whatever it is starts to fail because sin isn't just behavior. Sin is a deep enslaving power inside of you. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. And when they can't get over that, then they just go, well, okay, you know, just, okay, cool. Get out of jail, free card. And then we go into antinomian license. Anti means against Nomos' law, anti-law license. But if the church begins to accept license, Paul is saying, you do not believe in the gospel. You have accepted cheap grace, which isn't real grace. Cheap grace isn't real grace. And then, and if you accept that little piece of leaven inside your church, it is going to poison the whole thing. And so and notice, notice how he puts it. If they get serious enough, if there's someone so unrepentant in the church, he's like, you actually have to remove and kick that person out. What this passage isn't saying that the pastors and the leaders are going to go do a witch hunt, and some of you are going, oh my goodness, I've got sexual sin inside of me, or I've got other XYZ sins inside of me, and I've got to make sure the pastor doesn't find out. <laughs> because if he finds out, then he's going to do this thing and kick me out of here, and I, I kind of need to come to church. That's not what's going to happen. This guy, is, it's the sin is, if, if you have a sin that's open and you're unrepentant, that's when we're going to call you to repentance. And refuse, if you refuse to repent, then we're going to keep calling you to repentance and at some point we may have to kick you out to preserve what we stand for, which is the gospel. That's what this passage is talking about. But notice this. I want, I want to point out two things really quickly, right? Notice this. Number one, he says to you, he says this really scary thing. In the power, with the power of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man's flesh, this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Man, that's a scary verse, right? You know what? Because, but then notice what he says, so that, this is verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You understand what he's saying? Look, what does it mean for the, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Here's how I take this to mean. With Jesus, kick him out and let him go live in his, his own stupidity. 
Let him live according to sin. Because you know what's going to happen? Because then he'll be destroyed by his sin. His own sin will destroy him. And Satan will own him. But we don't just do that to kick him out. We do this with Jesus in the hopes that once he goes and his flesh gets destroyed, that he'll be called back. That his spirit will be called back to the Lord and he may come back and repent and get saved. That's the hope. So let me just say something to you. Um, the, The term for kicking somebody out of the church is excommunication. That's a really serious business. Um, In this church, we believe in that because the Bible teaches that. I hope I never, ever have to do that. I hope I can have like to to go to, to, you know, go till I'm 100 years old as a pastor and I, I, I have to do this zero times. I'm serious. I wish I could have to do zero times. But if we have to do it, we will do it. And we will always do it with mourning, with the hope that, okay, you're being a, totally rebellious idiot now but that the Lord the Lord Jesus will destroy your spirit rebellion and then will bring you back to repentance that's the hope that's what that's what this passage is talking about that's the problem okay but the real thing that needs to be it's neither legalism the reason we're always following this problem is because think oh no I got to get my act together and then you look to yourself to fix your sin problems you can't look to yourself because if you look to yourself to fix your sin problem, you're just a legalist, and you're going to fall off the cliff on this side. But then, okay, okay I'm, I'm, it's not, I can't fix myself. Then what we, what we do is then we go to the license side. Neither is believing in the gospel. There's a third path. And you know what that third path is? That's repentance. Okay. Let me go to part two of my message here now. What does a gospel-empowered, believing, repenting community look like? Because that's the church. The church, when it's really being the church, is not just a bunch of people just keeping our lives cleaned up and we're all scared that we're going to find, that everybody finds out that, like, you know, I'm, I'm messed up, okay? A lot of people think that is the church, but that's not the church. The church believes in this beautiful third pathway called repentance because we believe in the gospel. And let me just give you a little picture of what I think repentance could look like, and let me, let me tell you a different story, um, Another pastor. There's a pastor I respect. He's a, you, know, you can go to his church. If you're ever in New York, I would recommend his church. You know, you're on New York on Sunday and you want to go find a church. Go try Living Faith Community Church in Queens. The pastor there, his name is Stephen Rowe. He's a pastor that I respect. And he once told this story of something that was happening in his church. Um, he came out here and he, he, you know, he, was, he was speaking at a conference and I heard him tell the story. He said, there was a small group, in his, you know, they, they do small groups in their church, they do community groups just like we do in our church. And there was about, I think this, was, this group turned out to be um, a community group of, of brothers, it was just a men's group. And there were roughly about eight men in, the, in this group. And they were reading, and I don't know if it was exactly this, but they read a passage, they were going through the scriptures, and they read a passage like this about sexual morality. And one of the guys, in the, one of the, the brothers in the group, he was really convicted, and he got scared <laughs> by reading this. And he said, hey, brothers, just, just, can we just stop? Um, you know, instead of just going on with our Bible study like we normally do, I, I need to tell you something. I really, I, I'm, I'm in this. <laughs> I have a problem looking at pornography. Right? Um, and 
Stephen Rowe told the story, I think, like in 1998 when broadband usage wasn't as... I mean, back then we had like this really junky internet called 56K Flash. I mean, can you imagine this guy waiting for the, like, the, 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 the porn picture to come in slowly, you know, trickle, trickle, trickle in, right? <laughs> Nowadays, the picture comes in like this, boom! <laughs> and you don't even have to go to a computer. You can get it off your smartphone. It's, it's just what a crazy world we must live in. But this guy was confessing to his brothers. I, I can't get over this. I, 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 I try to stop. I, try to, I know this is filthy, and I know this is displeasing to the Lord, and I know this is wrong, and I want to stop, but I can't. And he shared this with his brothers. And after he shared this, three of the other guys said, you know, they, they said, I'm, I'm with you. I, I have that problem, too. So you know what they did? They said, you know what? Okay, here's what we do. So here's what they did. You know what they did? They moved toward repentance. And here's what repentance looks like. It's neither legalism, fight it on your own, use your own willpower, use your own discipline, just stop it. No, that's legalism. And they didn't just say, well, you know, we're all just going to just let this thing go because, hey, get out of jail free card, license. Instead, they said, you know, brother, let's do this. We know that you can't do this on your own and you need us. And you need, they began to trust what I've been preaching to you in the last few weeks, that God dwells in the church. This is his house. We're not talking about the buildings, you know, this, all this brick and mortar here. We're talking about the people. That the Holy Spirit dwells in God's people. And says, we'll be, the, let's be the church. Let's, let's believe that the Holy Spirit is in us, that we have been washed by Jesus. And so they made a pact with one another. And so they took a picture. They took a, all the brothers sat together. They took this picture. They were printing out this picture. All eight brothers took this picture, and they, they made this pact. And they said, any time, any place, day or night, if you feel this temptation to wander away from the Lord into sexual depravity, you can call any of the brothers any time, day or night. So they all took this picture, and they all agreed that they would put, place this picture on their computer at work or on their laptops at home at any time, 3 a.m. or whatever. You can just call the dude up and say, uh, pray for me now. <laughs> because, like, I, I, I want this 56K. I'm, I'm, like, sitting here like a pathetic loser <laughs> waiting for this naked woman's picture to come in at, you know, in the next five minutes. I need help now. I need Jesus now. Will you walk with me now? And so that's what they began to do. That's what repentance should look like. That's the church being the church. Okay. Not just everybody sitting there in, little, in their shame or just living it out and going, hey, I'm forgiven. Get out of jail free card. That's not believing in the gospel. This, something like that. That's the church. And in our church, in our community groups, this is what we look for. We want all our people, for there to be a love community and a safety and a security in Christ, okay? So deep, we'll all run to repentance. Now, let me say something like this. Look, we live in, we live in, a, in one of the, the most sexually, rampantly crazy places in the country, the Bay Area, right? And... 
I don't know if you know this, but if you go to other parts of the country, I didn't know this until I lived in other parts of the country, and they said, where are you from? Well, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. And they go, oh, you mean the gay area? <laughs> the Bay Area is called the gay area, you know that? And look, I know that we're living in a time when people really, really hate the notion that homosexuality is sin. And I'm just not going to back off here. I don't, I don't want to say this in any kind of like, like I'm not, I don't wake up in the morning and go, all right, today I'm going to pound it from the pulpit that homosexuality is sin. I just, I just really want to preach that message today. <laughs> but that's what the Bible teaches. And that's from God, right? And look, it says in the passage, I'm not talking about people outside of the church. I'm, uh, uh, people who are of the world, I'm talking about people who, are, who say they're believers. If we have a person in the church who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, and he's, he's living an openly gay lifestyle, we have a problem. We have a serious problem in our church. We, are, we, we would have to seriously look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and deal with that. But let me tell you something. If a, if, a, if, a, if a person living the gay lifestyle were to come and sit in our service right here in our church, and maybe it's happening right now, I don't know, right? You know what? I would be happy. Why? Because they don't know Jesus. The last I checked, the most, the most of the people who, who are living the homosexual lifestyle, they don't go around calling themselves Christians. They think that Christians hate them. They think that Jesus has nothing for them. And, I'm, I'm, and, you know, maybe a lot of you, you may not have same-sex attraction. Okay, I don't know how many of you have same-sex attraction. All right? But probably most of you don't because that's just, well, hey, that's just the way the numbers work out. They say the vast majority of the population doesn't have same-sex attraction. But you probably have a, a co-worker, a neighbor, a cousin who does. And if they were to come into our church, you know what? I would be thrilled. <laughs> Why? Because they need to hear what Jesus has done for them. They need to hear that there is a hope called repentance. And it is my hope. And I I believe that this isn't just a hope or a dream. It's going to happen. There will be people living the gay lifestyle. And for some reason or another, because I just presume if a a gay person came to the church, they're, they're looking for something. They must have some desire to meet God. Somehow God wants them to be here in our midst. And if a gay person ever would come to church, I would not think, what the heck are you doing here? I'm thinking like, welcome. God must have brought you here. <laughs> Into this really, you know, buttoned up, Asian family-oriented church, <laughs> right? If a gay person would ever step into our church, they're like, man, I'd be like, okay, that's basically a miracle, Okay. And then they might hear the gospel. And then perhaps, I'm just waiting for this to happen. They're going to come to me, Pastor, Pastor, look, um, I'm living the gay lifestyle, but I'm interested in what you're saying about this Jesus. And um, I'm interested in a, in a different kind of life. And I would love to introduce that person, that guy, let's just say it's a guy, and say, hey, you want to join this small group? And this small group, there's a guy who will say, hey, because in the world, the heterosexual person looks at the homosexual person and goes, you're gross. I don't want to be around you because that's sin. When the Christian thinks like that, that's legalism. 
But when the Christian walks by grace, you know what he says? He goes, well, that's sin. But you know what, brother? I really wrestle with, the homos- with, 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 with pornography. And your sexual issues are with same-sex attraction. Mine is with opposite-sex attraction. But both of us have sin in our heart. And we both need redemption. We both need mercy. We both need washing. Welcome to our small group. You want to walk with us? So we can be brothers? That's what repentance should look like. And is that compelling to you? Can you believe that there could be a community like that? The church can be like that. I do. I believe church can be like that. I believe the church can be like that because that's what the Bible teaches. And when the church is really the church, it is a very, very compelling place. Now, um, let me go to part three. Let me go to part three of my message. Repentance is beautiful. Some of you are saying repentance. Gosh, this, when, you're, when you're talking about repentance, I'm not quite sh- just like, whenever I hear that word, I always think of something kind of, it always sounds kind of bad to me. And l- let me just, I just want to close with these two things, right, about repentance. Repentance is really ultimately the outworking of believing in the gospel. And when I think of repentance, I, um, I, you know, there's certain pictures I have of repentance, but let me just give you like one picture that I had that I like to go to. And, you know, whenever repentance happens, it's compelling. Right? Um, any of you here seen the movie Remember the Titans? You ever seen the movie Remember the Titans? Right? I mean, uh, I hope you like that movie. I, I love that movie. Um, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, let me just give you a quick little recap. Uh, the movie Re- uh, Remember the Titans that came out, I think in like 2000 or so. It's, so it's been a little while now. Some of you guys might be a little, I mean, it's kind of sad for me to say it's too young <laughs> to know that movie, okay? But Remember the Titans is about a town that's big in football. And it's a town that's racially divided. And it's, you know, it, t- it takes place, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago or so. And when racism was a much more serious problem in our society. And the town is like half white and half black. And they, everybody cares about football. And somehow the school hired a, 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 a black coach to be the leader of the football team. And he's played by like the, the coolest African-American in Hollywood, Denzel Washington. Right? <laughs> so Denzel Washington plays the coach. And he realizes... There is no unity on this team, and there's no way we're going to make it as a team. So he takes the whole team into the, this, into the woods, and they do this really grueling training camp. And one of the star football players on the defense is a guy named Gary Bertier. And then he begins to realize we're never going to make it as a team as long as we are divided. And, and, he's, and he's racist like pretty much all the, other, all the other white guys on the team. And he's got friends who are saying, like, you can't hang out with them. Like, he's like, you're either one of us or you're one of them. And he's being pulled by his racist friends to go move toward that side. And then, but he begins to admire one of the other guys on the team, on the defense, a guy named Julius. He begins to admire him. And he starts to move toward him and say, hey, and he goes, you be the strong side, I'll be the weak side. And, you know, and they begin to, you know, and you pump, they begin to pump each other up. And, there's this, and they begin, and he, begin, he leaves behind his racist friends, and he chooses his teammate 
for the sake of the team. And toward the end of the movie, he gets into a car accident and he becomes paralyzed. And in this moment, when he's in this really painful state, he calls in the, his friend Julius, who's black, and he says, you're my brother. You're my brother. And it's a really powerful, moving part of the movie. And you know what's happening right there? The, 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 the course of that movie. He's one of the most important characters in that movie. Gary Bertier, you know what's happening to Gary Bertier? He's repenting. There's sin in his life, which at least, thankfully, most of our society recognizes as sin. We don't call it that, but, you know, like the secular folks don't call it that. We recognize it. It's, it's racism. And when he embraces Julius and says, you're my brother, it's repentance. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's a change of mind. It's a change of heart. And that's what the church could look like. And I'm calling you to be, in every facet of your life, I mean, racism, that's one that I think most of us have swallowed at least. That, that's, that's bad. We're gonna, we have to repent of that one. Right? But in all the other facets of your life, whether it's sexual or about greed or about other things, anger and reviling, let me close this message with this. Um, a number of you guys know that I've been doing this thing called discipleship training. And a, there's a number of people who have raised their hands and said, I'm willing to commit myself to become a disciple. And in week three, day five, <laughs> I did a teaching called um, All of Life is Repentance. And I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read out this thing that I use to teach. I'm, this is something I wrote, right, um, for our discipleship folks. And I'd like you to hear it, and this is the way I'm going to close out my message today, okay? Repentance is often not considered a joyful word. Too many people think that repentance means to feel bad for one's sins, and sometimes it also has the idea of trying really hard to change, right? To feel sorrow for one's sins, that's actually not repentance. What that is, is it's remorse. There's a difference between remorse and repentance, Repentance includes remorse. It may include remorse, but it means far more than that. Many consider repentance as having a sense of works. I got to produce this. See, that's a legalism. I got to produce this. But actually, are these some of the ideas that you have in your head when you hear the word repentance? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. And here's what it means meta means transform. And noia comes from the word noose, which means your mind. Repentance is literally a transformation of your mind. That's what it means. It's a transformation. It's a change in your mind. It's not some willpower you've got to do to fix yourself. It's a change in your mind. Actually, let, let me go to Walt Webster. Webster, I actually looked up metanoia in Webster, and here's what it said. A transformative change of heart. That is a far more sound biblical understanding of repentance. If repentance is a redirecting of a mind and a transformation of the heart, then not only is repentance crucial for the new life in Jesus, but repentance is it's actually quite beautiful. Repentance is the very outworking of faith in Christ. 
That's what repentance is. There's no such thing as believing in the gospel and there being no repentance. If you believe in the gospel, repentance will start to come out of you. Amen. It is to allow your mind and your heart to be directed toward him and the total sufficiency of Christ over against your own efforts, wisdom, and willpower. This is not some kind of super burden placed on the Christian as if advancing the gospel is some kind of work that you have to summon and produce of your own accord. No. Repentance is where God's grace and kindness, that's where it leads. It is the very outworking of God's power in you. Can't you see it? By Jesus' power, go do this. Think of repentance as redirecting your mind and focus to Christ. When that happens, that's when the heart changes. Repentance, then, is the very fundamental fruit of saving faith in Christ. There's a phrase. All of life is repentance. And you know what that is? It's a quote. It's a quote from one of the most famous pastors of all time. His name is Martin Luther. He recognized that even after we are born anew in Christ, there would still be sin inside of you. And so he has this phrase. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the Latin. It's kind of a nerdy phrase. Simul justus et peccator. What it literally means, you are simultaneously made righteous, and yet you're still a sinner. He recognized that's the reality of living in Christ. But what we don't do is we don't just give up. What he meant was that while we are still righteous made righteous, we may still be a sinner, and so all of life is to run toward repentance. Not despite that we are still sinful, but because even though we still have sin in us, we've been washed. If we are simultaneously righteous and yet still sinners, there's a process, there's a changing process, whereby all throughout our lives, we're growing, we're changing. We need to be constantly returning and redirecting our minds and gaze back to Jesus so that by His power and His grace, we'll be remolded and reshaped in our hearts to become more holy, to become more beautiful by the eternal life that is breaking into us by the Holy Spirit. So when someone becomes a Christian, he or she may have certain notable victories over sins, and that's exciting. Isn't it nice? You become a Christian, and then certain sins you can have victory over quickly, and it's, it's cool that you can change. But sometimes... At times, they're strongly persistent, habitually besetting sins that rest within the very fabric of our heart that we can't have victory over. We're like, oh, this is still stuck inside of me. Some of these may be a lifelong battle within you. At times, you may feel that you are losing that battle. But don't be discouraged and never give up. What is a few years of falling down to the Lord? You fall down once. You fall down. If you've fallen down for several years, you know that to the Lord, if you fall down for 10 years, He's not going to reject you. What the heck is 10 years of falling down to Him? He has washed you. He has paid an infinite price for you. Do you think He's going to give up on you? So all of life is repentance. This should not discourage you it should not feel daunting to you. In fact, it should actually be exactly the opposite. 
It means that throughout your whole life, the new eternal life, the eternal heart, will be breaking into you and will be emerging in you. That's repentance. It means that the transformation of heart and mind should be welcome, should be the welcome change that you seek and expect throughout all of your life. You never quite arrive. You're actually getting more and more changing. And repentance means that all of your life you are becoming and being made more beautiful and glorious from the inside out because of Jesus. That's the business of the church. Let's pray. Lord, it sometimes just feels like repentance is so hard. But I think it's because we look at it's something that we have to do. But it's something that we do with Jesus. It's something we do not because we clean ourselves up, but because we have been washed. Lord, that's what 1 Corinthians 6.11 says. We were idolaters. We were adulterers. But now we have been changed. That's not how you see us anymore. With an infinite price, you have washed us. With an infinite patience, you wait on us. And you give us the church where your spirit dwells. And you give us one another. And as the Holy Spirit arises in one another, we experience bit by bit, sometimes sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, a new heart and a new mind and a new life and eternal life breaking into us. I pray that you would do this in New Hope Church. I pray that there would be such tremendous power from your death and resurrection that you would turn our community groups and our fellowship into something so wondrous that this city, that the Bay Area would take notice. What? It's a weird place over there. I've heard strange things happen over there. And I pray that you would renew us the repentance granted by the grace of Jesus. I pray all this in the name of the great Jesus. Amen.